Well, good morning to you. Uh, if we've not met before, my name is Matt Bulloyan. I serve as uh, one of the two pastors here um, at Liberty Church, and it's a joy uh, to have you with us this morning. It's a joy to open God's Word together. Uh, we are in the second uh, letter from the Apostle Paul to Timothy. Uh, this morning we're beginning in that, and so if you want to go ahead and make your way to page 995 in one of those black hardcover Bibles, uh, 2 Timothy chapter 1 is where we will be uh, this morning. I have offended God and mankind because my work did not reach the quality it should have. These were uh, reportedly the final words of artist and inventor Leonardo da Vinci in the year 1519. Despite all of his accomplishments, all that he continues to be known for 500 years later, da Vinci did not feel like he had done enough or done well enough over the course of his life. And so he closed his life saying that. Last words are incredibly telling. Few things uh, reveal the depths of our inner workings, our priorities, our hopes, our laments, like our last words. If you get the time over the next couple of weeks as we're in this book, do a Google search of famous last words, and you'll see the range. So some people try to get in like one last comedic quip or memorable quote. Some express deep love and affection uh, for a spouse, for their family, for a friend. And some are incredibly dark and hopeless, a curse uh, or an angry outburst at the end of their life. Whatever it is, the true content and character of our hearts is often laid bare in those moments. This morning, we arrive at 2 Timothy, uh, which is, as best as we can tell, the last letter written by the Apostle Paul. It's at least the last one that we have recorded for us in, in Scripture. And piecing together the various clues from both Scripture and history, after the conclusion of the book of Acts, the Apostle Paul was released from house arrest in Rome, and he then embarked upon a fourth missionary journey. In the mid-60s then, the mid-60s AD, he was imprisoned a second time in Rome, and this time under more severe conditions. And ultimately then he was martyred uh, during that time under the reign of the Roman Emperor Nero. So this letter, 2 Timothy, is Paul's farewell discourse. And as I hope you'll hear in these coming weeks, it's even more personal so as we went through 1 Timothy, you probably heard, there's a lot of pastoral care. There's a lot of personal touches in the book of 1 Timothy. But 1 Timothy was also situational. Paul was calling Timothy to address, to confront the false teachers and the false teaching happening there in the city of Ephesus. And he was telling Timothy to establish the church there according to the design of God. 2 Timothy doesn't have that same situational backdrop. Instead, it gives us an inside look at the heart of Paul, his priorities, his legacy, his fuel for persevering through a life of suffering. Writing from his prison cell and awaiting his death, Paul asks his spiritual son, Timothy, to join him, to come and visit him one last time. But in the event that that doesn't happen, he calls Timothy, he charges Timothy to press on. I'm especially grateful that we're walking through this book together during Lent. Because as you heard Shay say this morning, Lent is a season where we remember our mortality. That we are dust, and to the dust we return. During Lent, we, we take stock of our lives. 
We ask God, as the psalmist says in Psalm 139, to search us and know us, uh, to expose aspects of our lives that are still so tainted by sin. Two of the metaphors scripture uses actually to describe our sin, prison and death, the very things that the apostle Paul is facing in this letter. We are those enslaved to sin. We are those dead in our sin. And then the flip side of that coin, we are also those who then long for freedom, who long for life, who long for, as we'll celebrate in just a few short weeks together, resurrection. So in these weeks to come, as you hear these words of the Apostle Paul, really the words of God through the Apostle Paul, pay attention to how, like nothing else, the gospel of Jesus Christ prepares you and me to welcome the prospect of our own death. Take stock of your life. And by repentance of sin, by faith in Jesus, have a clear conscience before God, as Paul says he is able to. The gospel uniquely equips us to do that like nothing else can. And it equips us to use what James calls the mist or the vapor of our lives for things that matter eternally, that matter in the kingdom of God. It equips us to endure and to persevere all hardship and suffering, all the effects of the fracture of sin, both from our own hearts and as well as the fracture of sin in the world. And at the end of all that, at the end of all that, even if we are sentenced to death like Paul, even if we are bound with chains like Paul, the gospel equips us to say at the end of our lives, not, my work did not reach the quality it should have, but instead, as we'll read in this letter in a few short weeks, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. So I invite you to listen now with open ears to this book that we love. This is 2 Timothy chapter 1 beginning in verse 1 and reading through verse 18. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus. To Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you, that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and, and now, I am sure, dwells in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Verse 8, therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel for which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Verse 15, you are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. 
May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. May the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you well know all the service he rendered at Ephesus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us this morning. Holy Spirit, pour out upon us wisdom and understanding that being taught by you in Holy Scripture, our hearts and our minds might be open to receive all that leads to life and all that leads to holiness. And we pray this through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. If someone were ever going to question his or her life, sitting imprisoned on death row would probably be a likely place they would do so. Maybe I've been wrong. Maybe I should have done things a little bit differently than what led me to wind up here. Instead, what we read in this letter is that Paul only intensifies his confidence. He only intensifies the depth of his conviction. Rome says to Paul, you are going to die. And Paul responds to Rome, Christ has abolished death. This conviction oozes out of every part of this farewell discourse. And so in light of this first chapter of 2 Timothy, let's consider a few of the aspects of gospel-shaped conviction. Gospel-shaped conviction. The substance of conviction, the source of conviction, the cost of conviction, and the comfort in conviction. Source, sorry, substance, source, cost, and comfort. So first, the substance. The substance of conviction. The content, the, the, substance, the substance of our conviction matters. It's the difference, really, at the end of the day, between steadfastness and obstinance. So you've perhaps heard the quote attributed to the famous reformer Martin Luther when he stood on trial for his faith. Here I stand, I can do no other. It's an inspiring example of steadfast conviction. But if, for example, on the other hand, Shay were to ask me to change my daughter's diaper, and I were to say in response to that, here I stand, I can do no other, I don't think that would go over as well. I don't think that would be viewed as an act of heroism on my part. So what is the substance of Paul's conviction? What is he willing, even joyful, to be imprisoned and to be put to death for? He lays it out right in the middle of this text in verses 9 and 10, that God has saved us and God has called us to himself. That there is nothing that Paul, nor you, nor I could have possibly done to earn or to merit the salvation of God. That it comes solely through the purposes and the grace and the power of God that have been at work before the ages began, before time itself. And in all the mystery of that eternal work of God, what's now been revealed, what's now been manifested, Paul says, is the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ. So the incarnation of Jesus, the death and the resurrection of Jesus, reveals what for centuries had been hidden, what had been obscured about the purposes of God. It brought about the fulfillment of that work of salvation that God had been doing since before the world began. And by his death and resurrection, Paul writes here, Jesus has both abolished death and brought life and immortality to light. Two sides of the same coin, really. Death dies and life lives. Our scriptures speak really of three different kinds of death. There's physical death, 
which is the separation of our soul from our body. There's spiritual death, which is the separation of our soul from God. And there's eternal death, which is the separation of both body and soul from God forever. But Jesus, through his work, abolishes all three of those. So physical death, as we well know, still a reality. But it has lost its sting. It's now just a temporary and an unnatural separation of our soul from our body, and resurrection is coming. Spiritual death, which is the consequence of our sin, has lost its power because the offer of life is now held out to all who would come to Jesus. And likewise, eternal death is no more our concern. We now have immortality because in Christ, our souls will never again be separated from God. He will keep us. He will preserve us. And this is why Paul can stare death in the face and write the way he does here and write the way he does in Philippians chapter 1 where he says, to die is gain. To die is gain. All of this, this abolishment of death and bringing life and immortality to light, this is an aspect of Jesus' work that we're maybe inclined to neglect. So it's common for us perhaps to speak of his love and his grace and his mercy Yes and amen to all of those things. Let us also speak of his triumph, of the victory of Jesus. In our convictions, Christians are not arrogant, gloating people. But this isn't one of those situations where we act humble so that we have something to fall back on if we're wrong someday. We are humble people as Christians, but we are humble precisely because of the triumph of Jesus. Because we are so confident of the end of this story that if we are wrong, we and the world are without hope and most to be pitied. Jesus has abolished death and has brought life and immortality to light. In other words, Jesus wins. Hang your lives, hang your freedom, hang your reputation, hang everything you are on the victory, the triumph of Christ. It is the only substance worthy of steadfastness in our conviction. Second, the source of conviction. In addition to this substance, what is it that produces and sustains this kind of conviction in Paul and in us? Paul writes here of both human sources and the divine source. So from a human standpoint, our ancestors, our families can be an incredible source of conviction. You'll hear in this letter how reflective Paul is. Sitting in prison at the end of his life, he's taking stock of things. And it brings to his mind deeply personal laments and deeply personal gratitudes. And one of the things here in chapter 1 that he is most grateful for are his own ancestors and Timothy's ancestors, the heritage of faith that both of them have. Timothy's mother, Eunice, his grandmother, Lois, they were some of the earliest converts to Christianity in the city of Lystra. His father, evidently, Timothy's father, was not a Christian. But as a testament to God's powerful work through single parents or through a parent whose spouse is not on the same page with them about their faith in Jesus, Timothy became thoroughly grounded in the gospel by the faithfulness of his mother and grandmother. Paul's statement about his own ancestors here is likewise incredible. Why is that? Because Paul is a Jew. His ancestors are Jews. 
And Paul spends his missionary career, the second half of his life, telling fellow Jews to believe in Jesus. And so when he writes here that his ancestors served God just as he is serving God, that's an important paradigm for us as Christians. It points to the continuity that exists between Judaism and Christianity. For Jews, coming to faith in Christ is not disloyalty. It is the fulfillment of their own rich historic faith and hope. That's a really important paradigm, even for the way we share the gospel with people who are Jews today. Now, we don't know if Paul's ancestors ever believed in Jesus. We also don't know if Paul's parents ever got to hear Paul express his gratitude for them. Because by this stage in Paul's life, his parents had almost certainly died. And I point that out this morning because as much as a generational heritage of faith, as we think about that, will be a great encouragement to many of us in the room this morning, there are also many in this room whose parents or whose adult children, to go the other direction, are not at present following Jesus. And when you have poured yourself out to pass on a heritage of faith to your children. That is an immense and an unrivaled kind of sorrow. And I wish there were words that I could say to alleviate that from you, and I don't think there are such words. But I would encourage you with this, that when you pass along sincere faith, what you pass along to your children is a gift whether or not you ever receive it, they, you ever see it received that way. And that you have every reason because of that to keep praying, to keep hoping that somehow, someday, like the prodigal son in a foreign country, that that child of yours will come to his or her senses, will arise, and will return. I've seen that play out in my own ancestry. My grandfather was the son of a Presbyterian minister. And he wanted nothing to do with the faith of his father and mother. And it wasn't until his early 80s, just a couple years before he died, that he came back and he returned to faith. We never have that guarantee, but we do have that hope. And we do have the reality that what you pass along when you pass along sincere faith is a gift, whether or not you see it received that way. In a similar way, Spiritual friendship, mentorship, is an incredible human source of conviction. Second Timothy, Paul writes even more intimately, even more personally to Timothy, his, his beloved child, his dear son in the faith. And for Timothy, perhaps in the absence of a strong father figure who was forming him in the faith, Paul stepped in and filled a void there. He provided what his human father did not. And some of us have been blessed with friends. Some of us have been blessed with mentors like this. And if so, we know how much their friendship can fuel and does fuel our own conviction. Because when we doubt, like we do, when we can't bring ourselves in certain moments to hope or to pray, friends like these can hope and pray on our behalf. They can do that for us. They can help carry our own faith when our faith falters. As reflecting on this brings specific people to your mind this morning, family members, friends, mentors. Take time this week to thank God for them, as Paul does here. And even more so, take time to thank those men and women themselves for a family that passed along a heritage of faith to you, if that applies to you. For friends and mentors who poured themselves out for your good. If you are a man or woman in this room this morning and you find in your heart a deep conviction 
for the truths of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is the case because God has used other people to help you get there. Thank God for that. Thank the other people for the role that they've played in that in your life. A third human source of conviction is that in response to the grace of God, we actively participate with God to develop conviction. So verse 6, fan into flame the gift of God which is in you. God is the one who grants gifts, but we have both the obligation and the opportunity to cultivate those gifts and to use them in all of the ways that God intends. And as we do that, in the process of doing this, of participating with God and cultivating these gifts, that likewise fuels our confidence and the depth of our conviction. We see God powerfully and actively working in and through our own lives as we participate with him in that. But ultimately, of course, the source of our conviction is not human, it's divine. It's from God himself, specifically, verse 14, by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. The very Spirit of God dwells in us who put our faith in Christ. And we are given gifts by that Spirit. We are given also the power to use those gifts in ways that glorify God and that bless other people. God equips us through his Spirit with everything that we need. And this is true for all Christians, all people who come to faith in Christ. It's especially true for Timothy, who on top of being a Christian has also been ordained, has had hands laid on him, commissioning him to the work of ministry. What we learn from these two letters, as well as the book of Acts, is that by his personality, by his own sin patterns, Timothy is prone to be timid, to, to fear people more than he fears God. And so the conviction that he is going to need, if he is going to faithfully persevere in life and ministry, will not come from within Timothy. It must come from without. And as Paul reminds him, that's exactly what has happened. God has given him a spirit not of fear, verse 7, but of power and of love and of self-control. What is the source of conviction? It's that by the Spirit of God, you and I are no longer people marked by fear and timidity, but by power. And not a, not a selfish, destructive kind of power, but loving power, power under control, power applied graciously and mercifully, just as God in Christ has powerfully and mercifully applied his own power to us and for our sake. The substance of conviction, the source of conviction. Third, the cost, the cost of conviction. Holding fast to your beliefs comes with a cost. It always does. It's sometimes more or less overt, more or less costly in terms of the consequences. In Paul's life, especially as persecution of early Christians intensified greatly under Emperor Nero's rule, that cost is obvious. And so Paul is writing this letter. He's in prison, and he's about to be martyred for his faith. In our time and place, in our nation particularly, uh, we are blessed with freedom of religion. And so I don't anticipate or expect that many of us will have the same experience that Paul did. But there's a universal kind of cost to conviction that each of us already have and will no doubt again experience. And it's the incredibly difficult choice, as Paul lays out in this text, between suffering and being ashamed. You get to choose between suffering and being ashamed. Verse 8, Paul charges Timothy, Do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. 
And then down in verse 12, he says of himself, this is why I suffer as I do, but I am not ashamed. So here's the choice. We will either suffer the loss of something, our lives, our freedom, our reputation, our respect, our opportunities, or we will try to keep all of those things and in the process be ashamed of Jesus and be ashamed of his followers or be ashamed of both. The goal of any kind of persecution, be it prison and death or marginalization, the goal of these forms of suffering are to make Christians ashamed of Christ and ashamed of each other. But gospel-shaped conviction calls us to always choose suffering. Always choose suffering. Why? Because though the cost of suffering is high, the cost of being ashamed of Jesus is infinitely higher. To be ashamed of Christ is apostasy. It is to turn away from him. And Jesus himself says in Mark chapter 8, for whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father. No one experienced suffering for his conviction like our Savior, Jesus Christ. As we read at the end of 1 Timothy last week, he made the good confession in the presence of Pontius Pilate and many witnesses. He held fast to the point of death. And we are called, as Paul says to Timothy here, to share in that suffering of Jesus, to take up our own share of it. Not to earn something, not because the the suffering of Jesus was in some way insufficient, but we take up our share of suffering to identify with Jesus, to bear the same reproach that he did and thereby demonstrate that we really do belong to him. Hebrews 13 reminds us that like a sacrificial animal in the Old Testament under the Old Covenant, Jesus was killed outside the gates, outside the walls of Jerusalem. And it then proceeds to say in Hebrews 13, verse 13, Therefore, let us, we his people, go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach that he endured. We're not only prone to be ashamed of Jesus, however, we're also prone to be ashamed of each other. We're prone to desert and to abandon fellow Christians in their suffering. And that's what's happened to Paul as he laments down in verse 15. Though he's offered his life for the sake of Christians and churches across this Roman province of Asia, virtually everyone there has now distanced themselves from him. It's an especially painful cost. It's an especially painful form of suffering because it's not an affront from an enemy. It's abandonment from those he considered friends. And there's something deep inside us that resists association with people who suffer. Is there not? There's something deep inside us that resists association with those who suffer. We don't want to suffer. We don't want to appear like failures or lost causes. And so when other people do, We put distance between us and them. You might remember during his campaign in 2015, when President Trump was speaking about the senator and former Vietnam prisoner of war, John McCain. And he said, quote, I like people who weren't captured. We cringe at that quote, at least I cringe at that quote. But the real difference between that quote and the default attitude of our heart is that He was just tactless enough to say it out loud. We are not only meant to bear the reproach of Christ. We are meant to shoulder the reproach and the suffering of fellow Christians. To carry and to bear one another's burdens. 
Now, there are false teachers. There are those who misrepresent the gospel, and there's a need to create the right kind of distance so the integrity of the gospel is preserved. But apart from that, Christians are not people who shoot their wounded or leave them for dead. Practically, if another Christian's reputation comes under fire then, be quick to listen and slow to speak. Be slow to join in a character assassination. Be slow to disassociate. Be quick to figure out what it is that you can affirm about your brother and sister in Christ. We should not only be quick to associate with Jesus himself, but with people who suffer for the sake of his kingdom. And entering into one another's suffering, that's part of the cost. That's part of the cost of our conviction of bearing the same reproach that Jesus himself bore. Finally, our comfort in conviction. There's not just great cost to conviction. In the kindness of God, we are afforded great comfort in it. And one of the most significant comforts that we are afforded in our conviction is the presence of other people. The presence of other people. Paul's main request in this final letter is that Timothy would visit him one last time. Remembering Timothy's tears of love at their last departure, Paul writes in verse 4, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. Now think about this. It's not like the work in Ephesus that Timothy's been doing for years has just stopped. It's not like Timothy has massive amounts of free time. But in spite of all that, Paul asks him to set that aside and to visit him in prison in Rome. In stark contrast to Phygelus and Hermogenes and the widespread desertion he's experiencing, Paul then commends the positive example of this man named Onesiphorus. Onesiphorus was not ashamed of Paul, was not ashamed of his suffering. He came to Rome, and it says he searched earnestly for Paul in order to be a source of encouragement, in order to refresh him. One of the rhythms of grace that we talk about at Liberty Church, one of the, the regular habits of a life following Jesus, the Christian life, is relational pursuit. Relational pursuit. And the word pursuit is really important in that. Because as we've all experienced, crossing paths with someone, being in a worship service with someone, being in a Bible study with someone, is not the same thing as pursuing them. N.T. Wright puts it this way, says, there's all the difference in the world between coming by accident on someone in need and making a sustained and eager effort to find them and to help them. Our pursuit, our presence, is one of the best comforts that we can offer one another. And few passages, maybe you heard this as we read it, few passages give us a clearer glimpse of the humanity and the vulnerable, vulnerability of the Apostle Paul than this one. You think about the Apostle Paul, here's this giant of the Christian faith, foremost missionary that we have an example of in the New Testament, the one who stares death squarely in the eyes and says, Christ has abolished death. Don't forget Paul is merely a man. And what he wants at the end of his life is not a sermon, it's not an amazing insight, it's not a miraculous demonstration of power, it's so utterly basic, he wants someone to show up and be present with him. Someone who loves him to be there. All of us are already equipped to do that with each other. Let us be people then who show up, who provide this kind of comfort in one another's lives. Of course, this kind of comfort is a gift, not a guarantee. We don't know. We don't know 
if Timothy ever made it to Rome. I really hope he did. I like to think about this beautiful moment, this amazing reunion that strengthened Paul one last time before the executioner's sword. But the unknown conclusion serves to you and me as a reminder that at the end of the day, we have one comfort. One comfort, one guarantee of comfort in the midst of our conviction. And it is, verse 1, the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus. Or as question one of the Heidelberg Catechism puts it, what is your only comfort in life and death? And the answer is this, that I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. It goes on to say, he has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from all the powers of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. This salvation, this promise of the life that is in Jesus, that is our one comfort in this life. And as Paul says in verse 12, I know whom I have believed, not what, whom. Our comfort is not ultimately in our doctrinal and theological positions. It is Christ himself. Christ himself is our ultimate comfort. And as Paul continues there, I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day that which has been entrusted to me. John Stott said it so much better than I could. He said it this way. We may see the faith of the gospel everywhere spoken against. We may have to watch increasing apostasy in the church as our generation abandons the faith of its fathers. Do not be afraid. God will never allow the light of the gospel to be finally extinguished. True, he has committed it to us, fallible and frail creatures. He has placed his treasure in brittle earthenware vessels, and we must play our part in guarding and defending the truth. Nevertheless, in entrusting the deposit to our hands, he has not taken his own hands off. He is himself its final guardian, and he will preserve the truth which he has committed to the church. We know this, Stott writes, because we know him in whom we have trusted and continue to trust. Church, our conviction ultimately rests on the persons of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. God is trustworthy, so may we trust him. God is faithful, so may we have faith. God has given us the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus, so may we believe. And may that embolden and sustain our conviction until we welcome that triumphant consummation of the kingdom of God when Jesus comes again. Amen. Amen. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, we rejoice in the reality that our conviction rests on you and what you have done and the promise of life that is held out to us. We ask this morning that you would strengthen us, establish us, our conviction deeply in what you have done for us, in who you are. We confess our fickleness. We confess our proclivity to be ashamed of you and of one another. Help us to always choose the cost of suffering, the reproach that you yourself bore, 
rather than to be ashamed of you and to turn away. And thank you for the ongoing gifts of your grace that we now come to this table to celebrate. We feast on your finished work. We, we are sustained by your word and by your spirit. We can be sent out this week renewed in the depth of our conviction, growing in the depth of our conviction because of what you have done for us on the cross. So we pray these things all in your name, Jesus. Amen.